Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I got a little change in my pocket going jingle Hang wants to call you on the telephone, baby. I give you a ring, but each time we talk, I get the same old thing. Always no hooky doggies until I get a wedding ring. My honey, my baby, don't put my love upon no shelf. She said, don't give me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. And that is very, very good advice. Keep your hands to yourself. And don't give me no lines either. That's a little musical surprise that Cat Pastor and I cooked up for you. Cat Pastor just referred to herself as the board op, which is such an understatement. I think supreme being, like in Fifth Element, would be a little bit closer uh, these days. Anyway, I'm here in my home. This is Colin McEnroe. Uh, the show is being produced from another location by senior producer Betsy Kaplan. Supreme being Cat Pastor is, in fact, running uh, the studio right now. And snow. I can look outside the window of my home and the snow is falling. And I feel before I present to you our guest today, we have a whole series of terrific guests, some of whom you've met in the past. But I feel, I feel I should quote James Joyce with the snow falling down like this. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was fallen softly upon the bog of Allen, further westwards, softly fallen into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorn. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly fallen like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. All right, a little James Joyce to get us going here, but now we got to get uh, in a whole different direction. A little bit later, Catherine Price, who's been on the show in the past, is going to talk to you about how to have kind of a screen versus real-life balance while you're obsessing about coronavirus and what else you can possibly do. Then we're going to have two ex- exercise experts because, you know, it's, it makes sense to be in re- reasonably good shape for about 18 different reasons, but you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to underdo it. We're going to see if we can help you find that Goldilocks place. I should also mention that our nighttime rebroadcast, which is usually at 9, is moving to 10 o'clock so that we can start airing the national conversation with all things considered, which I guess will be all things coronavirus, uh, and that'll be at 9 o'clock tonight. We'll come on at 10. That'll be for the foreseeable future. Uh, 
But we're concerned also about the law. Uh, and when we are concerned about the law, what we do is we contact Dahlia Lithwick, who's been with us for 10 years, uh, whenever we can get her. Uh, she reports on the court and law for Slate and hosts the excellent podcast Amicus. Dahlia, so great to have you back, even at a time like this. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm speaking the Irish accent. So um, I don't know where to begin, but one of the reasons I thought of getting in touch with you was a report over the weekend. It was hard to know how well developed it was. I think it uh, uh, it emanated from Politico uh, that Attorney General Bill Barr uh, and his Department of Justice were going to seek kind of more extensive uh, powers from Congress so that conceivably people could be held without trial, stuff like that. It seems unlikely that they would get this, but what do you make of things like that uh, at a time like this? Yeah, I mean, it's worrisome, Colin, for all the reasons you're flicking at. You don't like the idea of doing away with corpus, particularly at this moment, um, especially if it has nothing to do with the coronavirus. Um, I think the, the short answer is it's not going to happen. This was a wish list that Politico got hold of. Um, and as you say, Congress is never going to allow it. It does give you a sense of the kinds of things that Bill Barr is seeking. And it includes, as you said, allowing judges to pause court proceedings, allowing them even pre-arrest onto people uh, indefinitely. It also allows them to pause the statute of limitations and do teleconferencing about pending cases, even if uh, the defendant doesn't consent. So a lot of stuff there that is very, very worrisome, even though it's not going to come about. I guess it gives you a little bit of a sense of what the DOJ is looking at in terms of the long game. And uh, none of it is anything to be sanguine about. Right. I mean, there's, as we say, the sense that they won't get it. But the fact that they asked means that they're kind of exploring uh, how much they could expand what they can do. And and then we have that at the federal level. And then, you know, as we want it to be the case, we, we have a patchwork of different things at the state level. But, it you know, at this time, different states are understanding their jobs differently. There were still uh, traffic cases being prosecuted in Brooklyn uh, last week. Uh, criminal courts are operational in some places. There's other conversations about maybe, you know, getting people out of jails if they're being held for a minor or nonviolent uh, offenses. But Dahlia, it's sort of hard to keep track of all that stuff because it's happening at least in 50 different state jurisdictions and maybe even in, in more granular jurisdictions than that. So, so you've just hit on, I think, the nut of the paradox here, which is Anne Applebaum has an absolutely terrific piece in The Atlantic today about what's happening in other countries and sort of the roadmap of this is how. Oop, oop. We might have lost her Skype. So um, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to try to reconnect the Skype. If we don't do that, we can always uh, connect with Dahlia by phone. Um, sometimes we lose Skype uh, just if uh, somebody else calls the Skype line. Skype is a very finicky and, and harsh. Oh, here she's back. Hi, Dahlia. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. That's okay. It's uh, Skype. I think so, I was just telling people to read Ann Applebaum, yeah. Colin, in The Atlantic. She's got a really, really powerful piece today talking about what other countries are doing, authoritarian governments, very 
you know, they've, they've just put a bill in front of Orban that would let him ignore the law and suspend all elections and put people in jail for saying false information. We've seen in Israel, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is just saying we're going to withhold, you know, par uh, parliament's ability to convene the new parliament and we're going to stop my criminal trial against me. So, so this is really chilling what's happening in other countries. And I think sort of federalist system you're describing in this country where states have immense. Yeah, we might have lost her again. That's okay. Skype comes and Skype goes. Bear with us, all right? While we're getting her back, though, let me just uh, amplify some of the things that she's saying. So in some cases, local sheriffs around the country are doing stuff like releasing people who are serving sentences for nonviolent crimes. That's happened, for example, in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, where as many as 300 people are expected to be released. Los Angeles County, um, it's happening. Uh, one, of the, one of the other reasons you want to do this is you want a minimum number of people in jail if anybody in jail is in affected. Uh, and um, it's also going to happen soon if it's not already happening in Cook County, Illinois, which is apparently the largest jail in the United States. But um, it's something probably that should be happening everywhere. Anybody who's in charge of deciding who stays in jail, who's incarcerated, who's being held pending bail, pending trial, whatever, you should get as many of those people out and into some kind of safe environment, too. Don't just, I mean, particularly if there's any possibility that they're infected, you don't release them out into the world with no understanding about where they're going. But this is, you know, one of the many burdens uh, that's being borne by uh, by law enforcement. So um, I'm going to just vamp for a little while because I'm not quite sure where we've got. Uh, oh, is Don, oh, you're there. Oh, good. Oh, good. I was <laughs> I was unsure. All right. So, I mean, it's sort of good news, bad news, right? I mean, the, the bad news is that there's no consistent policy. So if the state of Georgia doesn't think this is a serious situation, then they're not going to do anything. Uh, that's sort of the bad news. Uh, the good news is that there's a lot of elasticity, right? So people uh, who are smart, who are running these systems, in particularly places where the disease is a little bit more recognized locally as a threat, can do presumably intelligent things. Yeah, I mean, I think you've just said it more succinctly than I did, that some of the fears that you might have of just massive federal overreach, like, you know, in Italy, where what they're doing may or may not be working, but certainly violates their own constitution. What you're going to see here is probably state overreach to the extent that there is. And the problem with that is that there's going to be state underreach. I mean, there are going to be states that do nothing. Uh, so really, I think that the, the, the paradox here is that you want a strong federal government response in a lot of ways. You're clearly not going to get one. It means that strong governors are stepping in and doing good things. It also means we're not going to have a nationwide response. I mean, another thing, and I've made this point before, but it's worth making again. Another piece of good news, I think, especially given the cloudiness of, of the Trump administration's grasp of this situation and their understanding of what to do. And I was very upset to hear him over the weekend. At one point, he was asked whether he would do something at a more national level, a national lockdown of some kind or a national restriction on movement. And he said, no, he goes, you know, there's some places where they only have like two cases. And I'm thinking, yes, that's the whole idea is you get ahead of the ball. You go you go to the places where they only have two cases and you try to shut the, vir the coronavirus down there. He doesn't seem to get that. 
the so the that's bad news. We're doing bad news, good news again, Dahlia. But the good news is that governors like Cuomo and I think our own Ned Lamont and and Gavin Newsom have an awful lot of power constitutionally to decide what's what within their borders. That that's absolutely right. And what you're seeing is the states, for instance, that already called out the National Guard a long time ago. You know that already did some of the quarantines and the lockdowns, you're seeing, I think, at least an effort at containment. As you say, you know, the argument that, oh, you know, there's no cases in West Virginia, so there's no coronavirus in West Virginia is obviously belied by the fact that we just don't have tests yet, widespread testing. And so I I think to the extent that it's good news, bad news, you know, we could play this game all day. I think a decentralized government is always going to be best on the civil liberties questions we're raising. I think on some of the federal powers, the emergency powers, that if we were talking about President Obama or even President Romney, there are things that should be done, you know, most notably invoking the Defense Production Act and starting to commandeer, you know, corporations into doing the kinds of things that were done in the Korean War, you know, make masks, start to get respirators. That's actually not happening. And that's where it's just bad news, bad news, Colin, that there are a lot of federal things short of quarantines and things that massively infringe on civil liberties or suspend habeas corpus that we could see the Trump administration doing that would make a massive, massive dish, uh, you know, difference nationwide and really short term. And those kinds of things are not, you know, oh, there's a trade off because the states can do it. The states are actually bidding against each other to get emergency medical supplies. Right. I think Cuomo made that point. Please, please. He said, don't do that. Uh, you know, you're going to you are going to set up exactly that kind of bidding war for supplies. It makes more sense to kind of dole them out on some kind of equitable basis that's driven by need and population and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it, part of it, I think, is there's our our national psychology, which is not necessarily a psychology that is universally shared. But you can sort of hear that as they as the Trump administration backs away from really using the Defense Production Act. And that, yeah, we don't want to be hungry under Orban, but we we there's a middle ground between that and this kind of slightly cajoling laissez-faire approach that the Trump administration seems to prefer. And I can't remember what was him, whether it was him or Peter Navarro or who it was saying, well, you know, we have kind of a bias against nationalizing industry. Well, it seems to me you could use the Defense Production Act with a little bit more force without nationalizing a company. Uh, That's right. And, you know, the thing that was the tell to me is way, way buried in that piece in the Times about all this. It turns out that, oh, the Chamber of Commerce just didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, again, you know, one wonders if this is, you know, using words like, oh, socialism under Venezuela, you know, as a way to deflect the fact that this is just bad for big business. That's actually not a decision that's in the best interest of the country. But I agree with you completely on the larger premise that this is where sort of states' rights and federalism, for good or for bad, this is where we've gotten. We just don't have a FEMA that is ready. You know, we don't have an HHS that is ready what needs to do what needs to be done. And the good news is states like California and New York uh, and Connecticut will probably do the right thing. The really terrifying news is what you're seeing unfolding in states like Texas or Florida or Louisiana, because you know, federalism doesn't stop coronavirus. States mm. 
don't stop uh, coronavirus. And so what you're seeing, for instance, in New Orleans is just chilling. And that's why I think in some sense we can look at each other and say, hey, it's good that we can't stop free speech or, you know, suspend habeas. But it's not good that states that are lucky enough to have governors who took this seriously might be able to avert catastrophic, you know, outcomes. But in states like Louisiana, where they, I think, continue to believe maybe there's not a problem, the virus is going to spread and it doesn't stop at the borders of Louisiana. No, the virus doesn't know where it is. And although I guess in places like Texas also are, you know, they're both red and they're blue, depending on where you are. I think Dallas, I think Dallas is going to some kind of lockdown tonight, but the rural areas of Texas may see the whole thing differently. But yeah, if you're trying to do that, that Gretzky thing of skating to where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is right now, you want to address those states that don't have huge outbreaks yet. And that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Hey, Dahlia, I, I wanted to say, a chunk of time to talk about something that I think is going to be tremendously complicated, and I'm starting to see an awful lot of interesting writing and thinking about it in places like the Brennan Center, and, and that is the November elections. They're going to be challenged in some way. It's hard to know what the challenge is going to be, whether that second spike is going to be hitting right around November, uh, but it seems like the, the planning has to start now for a somewhat adjusted version of a national election. What, what are you either thinking or hearing about this? We had a good, really good piece that I'd commend to folks that Rick Hassan did last week in Slate. He's our go-to elections guy. He and people like Dale Ho at the ACLU and a lot of folks at Brennan are saying, look, there are a couple of easy fixes that we cannot leave till October, and that is things like mail-in balloting and uh, no-excuse absentee balloting. You know, anything that you can do that would allow people to vote from home is, you know, obviously optimal. Colin, there's huge problems with some of that. Not everybody has a printer. Not everybody, you know, can get access, but it's certainly better than the alternative. I think the one essential thing I would say is for folks who are fretting that Donald Trump can simply cancel the November election, he absolutely cannot do that as a constitutional matter. That is for Congress, not the president. And so there's no possibility that the elections are just canceled. I do think that some of these measures, including making it easier for folks to vote from home and assuming that you know the electoral college pr process can unfold, I do think it elides some of the information problems that we're going to have. And that's where I do worry. I think that things like Facebook ads telling people false information about the census that the Trump campaign was putting out, uh, Facebook ads misleading people about elections, all of that stuff. And that really is going to be <laughs> heaped upon by, you know, Russian and other foreign interference. So I almost worry at this point less about free and fair elections. We have hacks for that. I think I worry about people getting bad information in a pandemic situation and then not knowing what to do. So as is often the case when I answer these questions, I think truth is the answer, and I think truth is in super short supply now more than ever. Yeah. You, again, though, I think we are we have we're sort of cast back into the world of federalism, uh, and we have to think a little bit also about what what I mean. States run elections, so there's no question in my mind that here in Connecticut, Ned Lamont and Secretary of State Denise Merrill uh, are going to do everything that they can to make a November election happen. Happen, but imagine. 
if there's either a, an um, overt statement or kind of a dog whistle thing uh, about, well, maybe it would be kind of good if the November election didn't happen because Trump is 20 points behind in the polls. And then you have somebody like Brian Kemp. Is that his name? The governor of Georgia he used to be Georgia, Secretary, yeah. Of State. Yeah, Secretary of State. You know, I mean, he'll have a lot to say about what happens in his state, too. And so you could have sort of real elections in some states and kind of, you know, Potemkin elections in other ones. That's exactly right. And I think you're seeing, even in the midst of a pandemic, you're seeing some states really doubling down on voter suppression efforts, really doubling down on purges. And so you're quite right. That's why I worry a little bit that if we sort of confine the concern to can people better vote from home, it doesn't answer some of those larger questions about states that have been hellbent for years on purging their voter rolls of people who don't vote Republican. And those are the kinds of problems that you're quite right. That happens state by state. And it's something that the Supreme Court has blessed. And so I think when I sort of worry about free and fair elections, it's this question, and I did a Q&A with Josh Geltzer. He's a former Obama national security person. I did a Q&A with him over the weekend where he said, I think we have to think about what happens if only 10% of the populace votes, even if it seems a free and fair election, it wasn't. And at that point, what do you do? And I think those are the kinds of questions that we need to really hone in on in the coming months is what is an election going to look like that is legitimate, even beyond the pandemic, we were already having massive loss of voter confidence in the election system, and this is gonna contribute to that. And I think people really need to believe that these elections are gonna be fair, they're gonna be open, that they're not gonna be tampered with, and doing that mid-pandemic is just gonna be a big lift. And to me, Colin, it goes back to transparency and, and really, really good information, and I think that's something states need to be working on right now not in october yeah you got to start liaising even with the post office if you're going to do a big uh, mail thing about how that's all going to work and signature verification all kinds of stuff that like a state like this one doesn't do a whole lot of we we do not have no excuses absentee ballots well dahlia lithwick it's been so great to talk to you and i hope we will continue to do this how are you how are you doing i know amicus is now emanating from a closet i believe it, it was in a closet last week and i've got a, a two-week-long hacking cough that is just a hacking cough but uh i think that you know you and i can probably agree journalism needed now more than ever and truth needed now more than ever so we will carry on right yep i think it's good uh, uh it's good to have stuff to do anyway uh, I'm, gl I'm glad to be working if i weren't working i'd be worrying uh all right our kids yep, yep yeah so dahlia lithwick uh take care of yourself uh, be well stay safe stay apart uh, from people who aren't well uh dahlia lithwick reports on the courts and the law for slate host their podcast amicus when we come back we are going to talk about your mental health a little bit and about you know how to stay up on stuff and how to maybe do something else on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock I am an island 
So we're back. Uh, we're having a little uh, phone problem here, which uh, I'm sure will be addressed in some kind of a, a droid way. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, so let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on. We're, we're This is, you know, it's Monday. We're doing a show, but we're doing a show like everybody else does shows now. I'm uh, in my house and Kat uh, is running around the studio. Uh, and <laughs> and Betsy Kaplan is sitting at home worrying uh, the way only Betsy Kaplan can. Uh, I wanted to also remind you, we usually are rebroadcasting. We keep getting pushed deeper into the night. So uh, we used to be at 8 o'clock. Then we got moved to 9 o'clock. Now we're getting moved to 10 o'clock. Our rebroadcast, uh, the show will re-air tonight at 10. Oh, that's because All Things Considered uh, is doing specials uh, or sort of a special coverage coronavirus thing. Anyway, that's running at 9. I obviously don't know what that thing is. <laughs> but I, I know it's important and uh, you should listen. Uh, okay, but just don't worry if we're not there because we won't be there at nine for a long time. Um, so I want to quickly say, uh, first of all, what we're working on right now is uh, talking to Catherine Price, who's been with us in the past, particularly about the whole question of your relationship with those blue light screens in your life, you know, phones and stuff like that. So um, one of the things that I, I, I think is true is that obviously you want to kind of limit that constant beep, beep, beep of news. You, you've got a, uh, oh, I think, I think we've got it right there. That's a good, such good news. Uh, so um, you want to limit that beep, beep, beep of news. But it's also true, and I want to salute them right now before we get to uh, Catherine. Uh, I want to salute them, uh, the people who are creating stuff, making stuff, and putting that stuff on the web. So um, particularly people who've been associated with the show quite a bit over the years. So I want to uh, salute two people that who should be well known to you if you're a regular listener to the show. Uh, Carolyn Payne, actress and comedian, organized uh, people in the West End of Hartford to uh, sing One Day More from Les Mis. I guarantee you this is the best use the musical Les Mis has ever been put to, but she had uh, all kinds of people and they kind of edited this video together of all these West End people singing different uh, sections of the song and dogs barking at whatever else. And then uh, our main uh, musical savant, Steve Metcalf, who is a fabulous piano player, has now, as a lot of musicians have, he has taken to just kind of serenading us once a day, maybe on Facebook. He's done a couple of Beatles songs so far. Um, I also saw a great video of Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was playing one of Lin-Manuel Miranda's songs, one of the George III songs from Hamilton, and then, then Lin-Manuel Miranda kind of tweeting back at him saying, are you really playing my stuff in seven-eighths time? And, uh, you know, when people make stuff, when people create stuff, I think it means so much, and I think it's a different kind of use of the web. All right, we're ready to go here with Catherine Price, a science journalist, the author of How to Break Up with Your Phone, and the creator of Screen Slash Life Balance, which is sort of what we're going to talk talk about that. So Catherine, uh, welcome back to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And um, so uh, let's talk a little bit. I just saw a, a reporter from the Washington Post, a guy named Travis Andrews, who's asking people to contact him about whether they're seeing their iPhone screen times shoot up during social <laughs> distancing and quarantine. But we sort of know the answer to that question, right? It, it, it's just, it is happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that you should not be alarmed if your screen time is shooting up because everybody else's is. I think it's more about just asking yourself how that screen time is making you feel. Right. So you you have developed what you were calling a quarantine challenge. Tell us about this. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out how to manage my own emotional response to everything that's going on right now, because clearly it's very overwhelming and very scary. And I, I think my brain just tends to 
to come up with lots of ideas as a coping strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had gotten a response to one of my newsletters um, for the Screen Life Balance project that I, I that you mentioned, where someone said, well, what if you did this quarantine challenge and, and invited people to join you and created some way to help people stay positive and also stay intentional about their screen time as we make our way through this. And I thought, well, that's a wonderful idea. So I created this thing called the Quarantine Challenge. And it's basically my way of having a platform through which I can share positive ideas for ways people can stay calm, where I can amplify stuff other people are doing, like some of the musical things that you just mentioned, um, and just basically try to bring some sense of empowerment and you know, lessen people's anxiety during this time and to help people really just make sure that whatever they're doing, well, let me back up. The basic idea is there's only so much we can control here, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that that's what's so scary is that we all want more concrete answers and we want to have more satisfying advice than just wash your hands and don't touch your face, which obviously we should be doing. But after you have done those things or are doing those things, we still have all this nervous energy. And so I wanted to provide people with tools for how you can make sure that that nervous energy is not just resulting in you constantly checking the news because that is going to make you feel even worse. So after you've controlled what you can control, in other words, what do you do next? And what I realized for myself is that while there's only so many things I can control personally in terms of the actual spread of coronavirus, I can control how I I respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to help people do. So, yeah, we should talk about this. One thing that I have noticed is I I have a young and pretty big dog who really needs a lot of exercise and so and i'm looking for places to exercise somewhere i'm not going to be bumping into people too much but the truth is the state parks are full the reservoir recreation areas are full it's kind of amazing i have never seen so many people decide that they need a walk in the great outdoors which i think is a very healthy thing Yes, it is interesting. My husband and I had that experience, too, this past weekend where we thought, let's go to this isolated state park where nobody ever is and go for a walk. And then it was like, we can't find a parking spot. <laughs> and then we found what we thought was an isolated entrance. We parked in some, like, you know, shuttered business parking lot and snuck onto this fire trail only to find that that trail led to the main trail where everybody else was walking. <laughs> so it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty amazing how many people are out. I'm actually thinking of, or I am, starting a, a very informal podcast that's going to be called Quarantine Walks. And it's going to be me going for a walk over Zoom with somebody else and just having a conversation as we walk 15 minutes one direction, turn around and walk back. And my hope is that I can actually do this in a way that other people can join in live and just listen to the conversation as they also take a quarantine walk so we can all be, you know, feel like we're emotionally connected, even though that we're, we're physically apart. There's something very, I mean, the idea of sort of a Zoomed walk, it kind of has pieces of both things, right? Uh, the 19th century transcendentalist meets the 21st century schizoid <laughs> tech user. Right. Well, I think that gets back to the point you were bringing up before of, you know, everyone's screen time is exploding. And as you said, I wrote a book about how to break up with your phone and I found this screen life balance thing. And what I just really like to emphasize to people is, again, it's not about the absolute amount of time you're spending on your screens. It's about what you're doing with it. And in this case, I think there's some truly wonderful ways that technology is bringing us closer, whether it be through conversations like the one we're having right now or, you know, Zoom dance parties or happy hours. Last week, um, my husband and I (laughs) decided that we would just spontaneously host story times for our daughter's preschool classmates and basically threw together an invitation you know, uh, picked out a kid's book. I have a friend who's a music teacher, and I figured out how to switch it so that she could take over my Zoom screen. And we spent 20 minutes every afternoon last week just having people tune in and reading books 
for the kids. And then the kids at the end said hi to each other. And it was really easy to organize. We we had a dance party um, in which we would just play a song over our you know speaker system and everybody danced along. And it made us feel great and connected. And sure, that boosted my, my screen time, supposedly. But I think it was a wonderful use of um, of the screen. Yeah, I th- actually, I don't know if you heard it while we were uh, rounding up your phone call, but uh, I was saying that as coming into the segment. I think if you're making a thing, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that if you if you make a thing, uh, one of my one of our regular guests here is now who's a fabulous piano player, plays the piano for people, you know, on Facebook, does one song a day. Uh, another one of our regular guests staged uh, uh, one song in a whole urban neighborhood, had, had them all singing one song from Les Mis. So uh, it took a lot yeah, of technology, a lot of people. That's not the only good use of Les Mis, by the way. <laughs> I'm back on that. I was showing my prejudices <laughs> there. But, you know, I mean, when you make a thing, uh, I think think that's a very different relationship that you're having with technology than when you're having a completely passive relationship. Yes, and actually that's a it's a great point. So I, first of all, I think everybody should give themselves less of a hard time about everything right now. That's a broader point, right? Like this right. is a crazy time. So, you know, cut yourself some yourself slack. Up anymore. Cut yeah. yourself some slack. But don't Just use said, but don't use slack to cut yourself some slack. Don't <laughs> use technology. I don't know. Some people seem like they're having a nice interaction over Slack. But yeah, but what I've been thinking about in terms of screen time myself is how there's different categories of what you're doing on it. And I've been thinking about it kind of as the three C's. You have consumption, like passive consumption of stuff, whether it's the news or uh, binge watching Netflix, whatever it may be. And then you have creation where you're actually creating something. And then you have connection where you're using it to connect with people. And I think in this situation, I, I don't want to put a judgment on any one of those. But for me, I certainly find it more rewarding and nourishing to do the latter two, to try to use screen time as a way to connect or to create. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lot more of right now, which is actually kind of inspiring to think about normal life. Really, so much of our time is just consumption. It's just scrolling. It's just kind of filling our brains with other people's stuff, but it's not really very thoughtful or intentional. And now I think what we're seeing is an explosion in people using technology in, that actually shows what it could do for us in our normal life. Because now we're so desperate for human connection that we are using these tools that frankly have been available to us, but in new and creative ways. And so for me personally, I mean, I'm not concerned about how many hours I'm spending on my phone or screen if I'm using that hour to have a conversation with a friend or if I'm using it to host a virtual dance party with people, you know, dance like a maniac in my living room and then see little icons of people I love doing the same thing. That's really joyful for me. So I think that there's a way for us to embrace and use screens in a way that's really positive. But I think what the tendency is, is for us to basically, if we talk about what happens in our brain when we're stressed out, the part of our brain that makes rational decisions goes offline at prefrontal cortex, just as like checked out. And so your your basic instincts are going to kind of kick in. And one of your instincts is to get that stress to go away. And one of the things you'll do is try to, you'll just engage in pre-existing habits, such as checking the news. But basically, every time you check the news and you get a new piece of information, that's very rewarding to your brain, even if that information is negative or scary. Our brains just really like new information. It releases this chemical called dopamine. And so when you check and you get a piece of new information, you get a little bit of dopamine. It tells you, oh, I should check again, even though the check is making you feel bad. And when you put these things together, like your rational brain out the window and this this um, self-reinforcing checking loop happening, you can understand why so many of us are just 
constantly glued to our television screens. It makes sense, but I think what we need to do is take a step back and become a bit more aware of how do we actually feel when we engage in these behaviors. Because if you can catch yourself scrolling through the headlines again and realize, oh my goodness, this actually is making me feel worse. I feel panicked and anxious. (laughs) You've given yourself a chance to say, all right, I don't have to do this right now. I've controlled what I can control, and now I'm going to choose to respond differently. So that's what I've been really encouraging people to do and try to help them um, learn how to do that themselves. I'm actually doing a free Zoom call today at 4 if people – you can sign up for this quarantine challenge at screenlifebalance.com. Right. You can find out about – Find out about all this stuff, including like the quarantine yeah. walks, which I think your first one is with Michael Pollan, correct? Yes, I'm supposed to do a walk with Michael Pollan, the details of which I'm, I'm working out. But if people sign up for this quarantine challenge, uh, again, at ScreenLifeBalance.com is probably the easiest URL to remember for that. Um, you'll get information on it. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to put stuff out there that's basically like regular resources, things to do, as I said, amplifying other people's efforts, just things that – when we say, when I say things like you have the choice of how to respond, actually giving you choices for how to respond or giving you more options so that you have something to do other than constantly check and worry and stress right. yourself out. So you can talk dopamine and Michael Pollan can talk caffeine. Exactly. Exactly. I listened to his really terrific uh, short audio book, Ella, if that were, whatever it was about caffeine. I really thought it was fascinating and, and terrific. So um, just very quickly, a couple last things here. Um, one of them is like some people, I guess, are fortunate enough so that they already had practices. You know, they either had a meditation practice or a gentle yoga practice or something like that. And it's probably pretty easy just to fall into that and to use it uh, in some of the ways that we're talking about. But for people who don't, and, you know, but maybe need something like that. What do they do? Just maybe just pay attention to their breath for starters, something like that? Well, it's really a great time to download a meditation app if you haven't already. And there's definitely live meditations going on that you can tune into. But you make a really good point. I forgot to mention this, that I personally have been trying, even before the pandemic stuff, to do a daily practice myself based on this planner that I bought that prompts you to list three things that you're grateful for in the morning actually identify your primary goal for the day, do a little bullet list of what you're going to do during the day. And at the end of the day, it encourages you to do things like write down a positive sentence to describe your day. And I have to say that might sound trite and cheesy, but it's actually really nice. And the act of identifying the goals in particular has been very helpful for me in keeping myself on track, again, even before the pandemic. So I ended up putting together a list of similar prompts that people can download. Um, if you Again, if you sign up for the quarantine challenge at screenlifebalance.com, there's a, a little download link you'll get, and that is a printable sheet that has these prompts. Because I think that if you're not used to it, like you need, well, we all need help. I don't think that the people who are meditating all the time are necessarily instinctively doing more of it. They may be freaking <laughs> out just as much too. But I tried to make something where it's an easy worksheet that you can use to kind of like give yourself a chance to start and end your day on terms that are not just looking at the news and feeling panicked. All right. Catherine Price, a science journalist, the author of How to Break Up With Your Phone and the creator of Screen Life Balance, which we're talking about right now. Uh, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of things you can do. I also wrote a column this weekend uh, trying to identify this period as the cesura uh, in which you can even maybe learn a new skill or the thing that you've been promising yourself that kind of fits into what Catherine was just saying. The thing exactly, you've, pr- yeah. you've been promising yourself that you would learn Spanish or you read Moby Dick. This isn't as an idea I stole from somebody else, but uh, but it's a good idea. <laughs> I've uh, been calling those 
quarantine goals. <laughs> there you go. I have, there I'm going to practice blues scales on the guitar. I completely support that idea. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today, Catherine Price. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk specifically about how to move your body and maybe how not to move your body. All right, time to say thank you and hand out credit. I could never give enough credit to the people who do all this stuff uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, people like uh, T.J. Coppola and Joe Koss and especially Gina Matruda, who always keeps things uh, happening in the right way, are there. Uh, Kat, oh, Katie Tolarski, the big boss, is always looking after us and doing whatever needs to be done. I know these are not very specific kinds of credits. It doesn't seem like it's not like key grip or something, but but just take my word for it. All right, and then Cat Pastor, whose uh, her job has been reclaimed classified as supreme being uh she is uh, the person running the studio right now making sure all the guests get where they're supposed to go our senior producer betsy kaplan produced this episode thanks also to tim rasmussen for telling us really bad jokes on zoom uh, i'm not exactly sure how that contributes to our well-being but it must in some way right all right so did i thank everybody if i didn't thank you i'll thank you tomorrow uh, um <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very callous somehow. All right. We, all, we do want to talk about exercise. And to do that, we are going to talk to a couple of people who wrote a piece that I stumbled across in the online magazine, The Conversation. It's uh, Tamara uh, Hugh Butler, Associate Professor of Exercise and Sports Science at Wayne State University. Also at Wayne State University, Marianne Fallman, Professor of Kinesiology, Health and Sports Studies, as I said, at Wayne State. Uh, they co-wrote this piece on exercise during the pandemic. Uh, Tamara, I'm going to get have you get us started. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum of exercisers, you know, people who do some, you know, fairly routine stuff to people who are endurance athletes and high performance athletes. But in a way, all of them are facing some of the same challenges right now, Tamara. It seems like, you know, how do I do some of the things that I used to do without putting myself in danger? So what kind of advice do you have about that? So thanks for, uh, for having us on. And, and again, too, we realize that there's a spectrum of exercise. And so, again, to, to say, I'll give, like, oh, you should exercise 20 minutes a day, three times a week, is, is like, not not targeted to everybody, but you have to be flexible in terms of what you do. So the general piece uh, of this of this article was that you want to maintain from whatever you started from. And so again, too, if you walk a couple times a week, you know, you should still continue to walk, but you should never like increase, but you shouldn't do nothing. On the flip side, we work a lot with a lot of like elite athletes and collegiate athletes. And so again, too, you know, their season has been disrupted. You know, our competition is going to continue. How much should they do? And what we wanted to do is it provides some, some, some support that you should still exercise. And you should still exercise probably at a moderate intensity. And again, too, not to exceed what you normally do, but to try to maintain that. So again, too, there's this wide variability. And again, too, and it all, it's individualized in terms of what you do. But again, too, the main point was any exercise without it being no exercise or too much, too much exercise is actually beneficial for your immune system, which Marianne can talk a little bit more about. 
So yeah, Marianne, we you you are a walker uh, as am I. I am my Fitbit. My Fitbit is I am I am my step count. That's my entire identity is how many steps I take every day and what my Fitbit thinks about how many steps I took take every day. Uh, but I mean, there's and there's some real advantages to that, right? I mean, I I think what you're finding is I mean, you do have to walk alone or as alone as you can get. Um, yeah. And so I don't know. Does that is that present a problem? Are you one of those gregarious people who likes to walk in a group? No, no. I actually prefer the solitude of uh, walking. So I do not necessarily need a group. And I have been walking throughout this epidemic. And what I'm finding is that the people are really respecting the six feet distance. They're, they're like people that I see every day that I say hi to now, as I pass them, we each move three feet in uh, either direction so that we stay safe. One thing that that I did, one adjustment that I did make is uh, I have decreased my speed so that I'm not mouth breathing. So I'm not drying out my mucosal membranes. I, I go slow enough that I'm breathing through my nose. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm like you. Uh, my Fitbit is the boss of me. Right. No, I, I, I feel like if you grew up in a family where you had to earn the praise of your parents uh, through your behavior, then a Fitbit works really well uh, because I now <laughs> want, I want the Fitbit to approve of me. Marianne, while I have you, too, there is a sweet spot. And it's interesting, too, because some of the information we get about what the sweet spot is is a little bit different from what we've been getting in the past. It's now pretty well known, for example, that that whole 10,000 step idea actually comes from a misunderstanding of a Japanese word. Um, yeah. And the 10,000, there's actually maybe a diminishing or at least a, a flattening out of the benefit after 7,500 steps for women yeah. uh, and stuff like that. But I, just for people looking for that sweet spot where they don't exercise to exhaustion and endanger themselves, um, I don't know, Marianne, how, how do they find that spot? Well, I think you just need to listen to your body. None of us needs to exercise to exhaustion. Only highly trained athletes that are functioning at that razor's edge need to do that. The rest of us, we just need to listen to our body. And when our Despite what our Fitbit tells us, when we're tired, we need to take a day off. There's absolutely no harm in taking a day off. So, and, uh, and if you get sick, that tells you something. Generally, one of the first signs of too much exercise is fatigue and a cold. So, so watch for those and respond appropriately. Right. So, I mean, that would be the ultimate counterproductive exercise where you started to make yourself feel sick while you were exercising to avoid getting yeah. sick. So, Tamara, right. um, uh, what about people who really have been kind of sedentary? Um, how do they get started? How do they do? I mean, the, the, you also don't want to get hurt by trying to do something your body isn't prepared for. Absolutely. And again, too, what the data shows is that even if you do something, Something like once a week is better than nothing. So again, too, it depends on like if you don't do anything, even if you can just walk, even start like before like 15, 20 minutes, like again, like Marianne said, you know, without doing, you know, breathing through your, your mouth, but again, too, so that you don't have pain. Again, that would be better than nothing. It would be interesting. So there's two, two types of scenarios when, we, when we're quarantined. is either like, well, I have a lot of time to exercise and people actually start. But again, too, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, you know, every other day, you know, so, so that you're not tired is a, is a great place, whatever you do. And the other, the other end of the spectrum was like people were like, okay, I'm going to exercise all the time. Uh, and that's not good, too. So again, too, you know, where everybody's sweet spot begins with, you know, how you start. Just start with something 
five, ten minutes, even if it's sit-ups, push-ups, doing the yoga video. But, you know, try to take a day of rest in between. And again, too, you don't want to be sore, uh, huffing and puffing, or or be in any pain when you start to do it. But again, too, if you have time, I mean, we should all be doing something. It's Now it's the opportunity. Right. And I just want to say this article is terrific. It's very helpful. And I mean, one thing, one point the article makes is this is really a meaningful thing. They have actually done studies, including a study during the Hong Kong flu outbreak in 1998. And it really did make a difference in terms of outcomes, in terms of yeah. whether or not you died, actually. Um, yeah. uh, you lowered your risk considerably if you did, uh, once again, that midpoint of exercise, five days of exercise a week uh, might be a little bit too much, particularly if you're not used to it. But if you can find that, you know, you know, maybe three or four days a week uh, of the right kind of exercise, uh, you're going to be safer uh, in this pandemic. All right. We want to thank uh, these two guests here uh, very much, uh, Tamara, Tamara and Marianne. That's Tamara Hugh Butler, Marianne Fallman, uh, both professors uh, at Wayne State University. And I've got to start winding down here. But I want to thank all of you for listening to you. Um, I don't know. It's great. It's good to have work to do during, at a time like this. And it's good to have meaningful work. So you help make our lives meaningful by listening to the show we will be uh, airing tomorrow a show about sanitations a show we did years ago i'm not going to lie to you there's a lot of poop on the show i mean we talk about poop a lot so that might be not be where your mind and heart are uh and then we'll be back with a brand new show on wednesday <laughs>